Well, good morning, church. It's great to see all of you here this morning. We have been in a series this summer that we're calling The Language of Prayer. We're just recognizing the fact that God has given us, right in the middle of the book of the Bible, um, this amazing prayer book that God invites us to essentially to teach us how to pray. It's almost like a lexicon of language for us to speak every emotion out of every context that we would experience as human beings. And so we're looking at Psalm 139 this morning, a really beloved psalm. Um, we just heard it read and sung to us. And so let me just pray uh, as, we, as we go to God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that already this morning we have heard your word preached to us in the proclamation of forgiveness and the proclamation of your love and the proclamation of your watchful care over our lives. I pray now for help from your Holy Spirit, uh, for me and for all of us, that we would not only hear your word today, but that we would respond to it with obedience and with love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In my school growing up, there was a soda machine that always stole your money. Uh, this was back when you actually used real change uh, and, and Coke cost 50 cents. And so you would take a couple quarters, stick it in a change slot in the machine, and somewhere along the way from the change slot to the Coke, the change would get wedged right there. And the Coke would never come. And so what did we learn to do? We learned to whack the machine in just the right place, just the right amount, and when you whacked it in that way, then the, then the change would drop and the Coke would come. Friends, I want to suggest to you this morning that if you are a Christian, um, you have a gap in your life. And this gap is not between the change slot and the Coke, it's between your head and your heart. I have a really a fancy diagram here for you. Um, up in your head is the stuff you know, the stuff you believe, things about God, things about Jesus, the gospel, things you learn in church and Sunday school, Bible study. But down here in your heart is the stuff you feel. Happiness, sadness, anxiety, insecurity, envy, anger, fear, sorrow. And for all of us, I think there is this gap between up here, stuff we know about God, and down here, what we feel and what we actually live. Oftentimes, the truth we believe somewhere gets wedged and never actually works its way down into the heart to create personal change. And actually, Scripture says it's the, the heart that is the control center of our lives. The heart is the place of our loves. And so it doesn't even matter so much what you believe in your head. It's the heart that actually determines the way that you live. So just let, give me, let me give you an example of this. Um, in my head, I believe in the doctrine of justification, this glorious Reformation doctrine, right? I believe this. I believe that though I'm a sinner justly deserving God's wrath and condemnation, that Jesus lived my life and died my death, and by trusting in his grace by faith, God takes Jesus' righteousness and gives it to me. And I am now declared righteous, free of guilt before God, in the verdict in the courtroom of heaven, right? That's the doctrine of justification. You say, Corey, do you, Pastor Corey, do you believe in the doctrine of justification? Yes, sir, I do. And yet, do you know what this about me? I'll tell you something about me. Almost every day, I struggle with deep insecurity, I struggle with trying to prove myself to other people. I struggle with envy, with comparing myself to other people. What is up with that? I believe in my head that I am declared righteous in the courtroom of heaven, and I'm trying to prove myself to the men and women around me? What is wrong with me? I'll tell you what's wrong with me. There is a gap between the head and the heart. 
There, somewhere along the way, the truth of justification has gotten wedged, and it has not yet fully changed my personality, my experience, and the feelings of my soul. So, so many, friends, of our immaturities and flaws, our lack of integrity and our stunted growth is due to this, this gap between our heads and our hearts. You can be a very knowledgeable Christian um, and know all the creeds and have many, much scripture memorized and yet be a jerk. You know, yet be someone who has not been changed by the love of God, is continuing to be bitter and resentful and unkind. Why? Because what is up here has not yet worked into the places of the heart. Charles Hodge, that great Presbyterian theologian, said it like this. True knowledge of God is not just the apprehension of what he is by the intellect, but involves the corresponding feelings of adoration, delight, and desire of the heart. In fact, sanctification, which is just a fancy way of saying how God changes us spiritually, is really just narrowing of the gap between the head and the heart. So that what you believe increasingly changes what you feel and how you live. So the question is, how do we do that? How do we move stuff we know down into where stuff we feel? How, how, do, we, how do we help the things that we believe in our head to begin to actually transform our hearts, our lives, and our personalities? Well, the Spirit is in charge of that work, but He has given us many tools, and one of the tools that He has given us that we are talking about this summer is prayer. I'll put it this way. Prayer is a tool of the Holy Spirit that works the great truths of God down into our hearts for personal change. That prayer is a powerful tool of the Spirit that works the great truths of God in our heads down into our hearts for personal change. So in other words, prayer is the bang on the machine. that wake you up? Prayer, prayer is the, the working of the truths of God down into the heart for the purpose of personal change. Now, Psalm 139 is an amazing example of this. This contains some of the most incredible theology that you will ever find in the Bible. Um, Theologians say that the theology that is described in here are the incommunicable attributes of God. We've got the communicable attributes of God, which are things like holiness and love, things that actually God, like a communicable disease, um, we can catch. You know, you can become holy. You can become loving. But there are other incommunicable attributes of God that are his and his alone that cannot be transferred to you. And those are the things we're talking about today. The omni-attributes, omniscience, omnipresence, omnipotence. As, you know, even as you parents, you think you can be these things with your kids, but you can't. They're incommunicable. And what many people, though, miss with this psalm is that this is not an essay by a guy sitting in a classroom ruminating on the theological attributes of God. This is a man sitting in the sorrows and the sufferings of life, praying the truths of God into his soul. We're not looking at a guy in a classroom. We're looking at a guy in a prayer closet. And just look at the end of the psalm. Did you notice the end of the psalm, verses 19 through 24? Wasn't that such kind of a weird downer when Tracy started saying all this stuff about her enemies? I mean, I didn't even know she had any enemies. And here she's like saying how much she hates them and stuff. You know, a lot of times when we read this psalm, we just skip over those parts because it seems to kind of taint the good feeling of the rest of the psalm. But those parts are important. Why? Because this is real life. This is real life, friends. And real life is full of enemies and hatred and and anger and wickedness and anxiety and sin and guilt and fear. It's all here. And it's all in your heart. And David is asking God to get into his heart, to change him and help him. 
and make him new. And that's what prayer can do. Prayer is not just asking God for stuff. Prayer is the work of meditating and contemplating and ruminating and cogitating on the great truths of God that they might move from the head down into the heart for personal change. That's what prayer can do. So let's, let's see how this works with Psalm 139. This psalm is neatly divided into three stanzas, each one addressing one of these incommunicable attributes of God. First, omniscience, then omnipresence, then omnipotence. And we're going to see how each one can actually begin to change the heart. And as we walk through these, I want you to consider that if you are a Christian, think about how there might be a gap in you between the head and the heart, that some truth up here has gotten wedged. And it hasn't produced personal change. Think about that as we work through these. And if you're not a Christian, or if you don't even know if you're a Christian, as some of you I just probably think aren't sure, I want you to consider that some of these beautiful truths that I'm about to talk about are actually the things that you most need for God's presence and his power and his love to penetrate your life, that you would finally be the person that you long to be, that God wants you to be. Would you consider that as I work through these? All right. So first, let's look at the first paragraph. God's omniscience. David is praying about being known. Check this out. David is using this beautiful poetic language to describe God and how nothing escapes him, everything is open to him, and everything is known. He's using a literary device called a mirism, which is essentially him implementing polarizing contrasts to describe the magnificence of God. So verse 2, he says, you know when I sit and when I rise. You know my going out and my lying down. He's saying that wherever you are, whatever you're doing, whether you're at work or at home or at school, whether you're sleeping or active, whether you're exercising or playing your PS3 or standing in line at the DMV or watching a movie or doing your taxes or reading bedtime stories to your kids or if you are a kid and having bedtime stories read to you, that no matter what you are and what you are doing, all of this is known and seen by God. Now, This may not be all that impressive to you, given this age of surveillance and the fact that probably Google and the government has that same intel on you as well. Um, But David takes it a step further. He says in verse 2, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Now, Google can't do that, ha. And then he says, verse 3, you are familiar with all of my ways. See, we can see what each other are doing, but it's very difficult to discern what is going on within The heart. You know, I thought that I did, and then I got married. And you realize you can't actually know what is going on in the surface of someone's heart. Now, David is saying that God does. That every emotion and feeling and every idea and thought and compulsion and every resolve and doubt and motive and perplexity and confusion and anxiety, everything is just totally seen to God like an open book. But then he takes it even further. Check this out. Verse 4 Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. He's not just saying that God knows what I'm going to say before I'm going to say it. He actually is saying that God knows what I'm going to say before I know what I'm going to say. We think we know ourselves. You think you know yourself? You don't. What you know is yourself in one particular punctiliar moment in the space-time continuum. That's what you know. I know myself as sort of a a middle-aged 40-year-old man. That's what I know, and it grieves me to say that, middle-aged man. Uh, But that's what I know. That's the me that I know, but not God, because God is not within time. He is beyond time. He is not just 
fully, it's not just that he sees the future, he is in the future and fully present in the future every bit as much as he is in the past. He is the eternal now. He is the one who is fully present to my past, to my present, to my future, and he sees, is the only one who sees me in totality as I am in every moment of my life. That's the real me, and he sees me, he sees you as you are, the only one. No wonder, he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He's basically saying, my mind is blown. Mind blown, right? How does this truth change us? Remember, David is not giving a theology lecture. He is praying. He's praying the truth of God's omniscience into the struggles of his heart. How might you do this? We talked about this a couple weeks ago, but we all have this longing to be known. We all do. We all have this longing to be understood, all of us. Yeah, how many of us feel unknown, right? How many of us, even if we have tons of friends, lots of acquaintances, and lots of friendships, and even if maybe if we're married, all of us continue to struggle to feel misunderstood and not really known. I will never forget counseling a young man who said to me, I thought that getting married would cure my loneliness. He said, you know, after I got married, I realized here I am as close to another person as is humanly possible, and I still feel unknown, and that's when I felt really alone. That's sad when you realize that. When you realize that the truth is no human can ever fully know you, all the depths and all the complexity of what you are. And in fact, what the psalm is saying, you can't even know you. You can't even know the fullness of who and what you are. Yet in times of loneliness and confusion, times when you don't feel understood or seen or known, this truth that God knows, that he sees you and knows you even better than you know yourself, this can be a truth that is utterly transforming. The, the person who submitted this psalm, recommending that we preach it this summer, shared a beautiful story about how this psalm spoke to her. She, she had had a really difficult breakup and was, uh, and was at a retreat. Uh, and the leader invited everyone to take this psalm uh, and spend an hour with God, with this psalm. He said, don't come back until God has spoken to you. Now, she didn't want to do that. You know, she's grieving this breakup. She's in her late 30s. She's grieving never being, uh, you know, never feeling like she's going to get married, that she's never really going to be known, that she's never really going to be loved. And as she prayed through this psalm, God spoke to her through verse 5. You hem me in behind and before. And suddenly she got this image of God as the strong man standing behind her with his arms wrapped around her, clasping her tight. And God spoke to her art in that moment, I know you. I've got you. Now, do you think if you had asked her if she believed in the doctrine of the omniscience of God prior to that experience, she would have said yes? Of course. But do you think in that moment she needed through prayer, the truth of God's omniscience to work into her heart to create personal change? By all means, yes. And because of that experience and others like it, this woman is, a, is, the, is the strong single woman that she is today. Do you see how God wants to do this in you? He knows you. Meditate on that. Nothing you say or do can shock him. Nothing you think or feel is a surprise to him. No deep place or longing in you is hidden from him. He knows all and sees all, and yet he loves. There are people who think you're great, but they don't really know you. There are people who know you, and they don't like you. And yet here is a God who knows all, sees all, and yet he loves you with an eternal love. You are fully known. Will you pray that truth 
into your heart and see what happens. Would you just see what happens? That's God's omniscience. The second thing that he does is he meditates on God's omnipresence. In this sense, he's praying about being secure. Verses 7 through 12. Again, David is using these poetic polarities to get across the magnitude of God's character. He says, verse 8, look with me. If I go up to the heavens, that's as far as he can think of. Have you ever looked up to the starry sky at night and tried to look as far as you possibly can? That's what David is doing. If I look up to the heavens, there you are. You're up there. And then he thinks, if I look down to Sheol, the places of the depths, the lowest place he can think, hell itself, there you are. He says, verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, that's as far east as you could possibly go, the place where the sun rises. And then he says, if I settle on the far side of the sea, that's as far west as he can think of. Remember, they're, they're, the sea that they think of is the Mediterranean, which is west of Israel. So he's thinking spatially in every direction, as high as I could go, as low as I could go, as east as I can go, as west as I can go. I cannot escape him. There he is. And then he says in verse 11, okay, one, just la- one last chance to escape this guy. How about just turning off the light, closing the blinds, and pulling the covers over my head? Not that I've ever done that, at least in the last two days. <laughs> but what about there? Can God get there? And he says, not even there. Not even the most impenetrable, despairing gloom can shut God out. You can hide from your spouse. You can hide from your friends. You can hide from your kids. I've even hid from my dog. But you cannot hide from this God. There is no corner of the universe, no place in life, no, no minuscule place in the created order where God does not have total access. And when I say God is everywhere, I don't mean that he is stretched out like silly putty, right? And the, and the, and the further you stretch, the more thin and dissipated he becomes. No, God does not dissipate. God does not thin out. You know what I mean? All of him is everywhere. Not only is he fully present in every point in time, he is fully present in every point in space. No wonder David's mind is blown, right? But remember, this is not just a theology lesson. This is prayer. This is a man praying the truths of God into his heart. We don't know what he's going through. Some people think he might be trapped by an enemy, hiding in a cave, stuck in some desolate place, wrestling in despair. But he is meditating on the omnipresence of God, the great truth that he is held fast. Don't you love that in verse 10? Held fast, that even the darkness is light to God, and that is restoring his hope. I will never forget a testimony from a young woman who joined our church a few years ago. She shared um, that she was struggling with a really serious alcohol addiction for many years. And then on top of that, she developed a really serious eating disorder. And in one very low moment, uh, she was laying slumped on her bathroom floor. And she was crying, and she was just so tired of the pain, tired of her life, feeling utterly alone, utterly abandoned. She'd lost the will to live. And she was not religious. She had real no background in Christianity. And so just in one sort of last-ditch, desperate cry... She called out to Jesus, and she said, Jesus, help me. And she opened her eyes, and and, and God just gave her a spiritual vision. There on the floor with her, thin, emaciated, and tired, was Jesus. And he looked her in the face, and he said, I'm with you. I'm with you. And she knew in that moment there was no such thing as abandonment for those who know Jesus. Even when you were in the depths, There I am with you. Now, it doesn't always work this way. Uh, Rarely do you hear a voice. 
Really, do you have a vision? I can tell you from experience of being in places of personal despair myself that rarely do you even have a great sense of a feeling of his presence, which is why prayer is all the more important that even when you do not see God's presence and even when you do not feel God's presence, you must pray the truth of God's presence, the truth that you know to be true from the scriptures. You pray the truth of his presence, not just in your head and your brain, but down, working the truth of his grace for you into your heart. There is no place that he is not present. There is no misstep that can mar his will. No detour can drop his direction. No pit that he is not deeper still. Pray that. Pray that into the heart and see what happens. You will find that wherever you find yourself, however you've ended up there, that you will be securely held by God who holds you fast. And that frees you from all sorts of anxiety and despair. That is praying about being secure. So we've seen that first we must pray God's omniscience. Second, we must pray God's omnipresence. And finally, verses 13 and 18, he prays God's omnipotence. Now, omnipotence, or in Spanish, todo poderoso, which is, I love that, todo poderoso. He, he is praying about God's life creating power because only God has the power to bring life out of nothing. In these famous verses, David first reflects on his own creation. Look at verse 13. You knit me together. <laughs> you, it's actually sort of, it, it actually kind of says, you embroidered me. <laughs> like God is, God is really crafty. You know, God, you embroidered me together in my mother's womb. My frame was not hidden from you. He's talking about his physical body, his frame. And then he says, you created my inmost being. That's the internal parts of your soul. He actually uses the phrase there, my kidneys, which in the Hebrew worldview was the the place of the internal soul. Uh, Your personality, your interior life. He's saying that everything, both external and internal, body, flesh, and soul and personality, God created. And then look at this, verse 16. He says, all the days ordained for me were written in your book even before one of them came to be. He says that God planned out every day of your life. Think about this, guys. Planned out every day of your life, even before your days are lived. And so I want you to imagine your life as a, a, a timeline, right? And at one end, you have your conception. Not just your birth, but your conception. This is God was there. He knew you. At the other end, you have your, your, your aging and your death. The last days that you, imagine even, I know you may not like to think about that, but just imagine for a moment, just the last day that you live. When you're feeling even useless, feeling like, why am I even here anymore? He says, every day, from the first to the last, from the, from the tiniest cells coming together, to the day when you can hardly move and wonder your purpose. Every one of those days, planned, ordained, and infused with tremendous purpose. God is omnipotent over your life. As an aside, there are some powerful ethical implications of this. Based on these verses, the historic church, and I mean the church of every age and every nation, has has stood against uh, life-denying practices like abortion and like uh, euthanasia, the the ending of life. And and for at least the first 400 centuries of the church and, and many churches worldwide today, even against the death penalty, against every practice in which a person puts themselves in the place of God, deciding when life is taken. Yet God and only God is in charge of such things. And I want you to understand, I'm not being political about this. 
I'm not, I mean, I'm not trying to be political right now. Because as you know, if you know anything about those issues, right? Abortion, euthanasia, death penalty. These are not issues that fall neatly into party lines. <laughs> if anything we've learned from the last couple of years is that there is no political party that can comprehensively embody the values of the kingdom of God. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you do not swear allegiance to any king but Jesus alone. We know that to be true. I'm not being political. I am being pastoral. You hear me on this? And so what he's saying is this, is that how we believe these truths of God when we feel like we are worthless or when you think another life is worthless, when you feel like you are a mistake or you think another life is a mistake, when you wish you were someone different or when you are at the end of your life and maybe feeling a bit useless. When my friends Peter and Amy Julia Becker had their first child, actually Sarah and my godchild, Penny, it seemed like a typical birth with everything going as planned. But soon after Penny was born, the doctor came in looking very grim, and he said, I have no idea how this slipped past us in all the prenatal tests, but your daughter has trisomy 21. She has Down syndrome. And it was shattering. I mean, all the visions for your child sort of erupted at that moment. And those were scary days. You know, as they talked together and prayed together and worried and wondered about what was ahead. But over the years, I tell you, friends, not only has Penny flourished, but she bears witness to the image of God in a way that many people who have the typical number of chromosomes do not. And recently, Amy Julia wrote this. She said, I find great comfort in knowing that Penny's life and the act of God forming her life was not a mistake, but was just as purposeful as any other life. This is a great comfort to me, especially when I start asking what-if questions. She says, we are all fearfully and wonderfully made before we are broken. Penny is no more broken and no more beloved than I am. So many of you struggle to believe this about yourselves, friends, especially because we live in a society that insists you must look and be a certain way to have true value. But here we know that the color of your eyes and the shape of your body and the texture of your hair color of your skin, the tenor of your voice, the size of your feet. I included that because I've always been insecure about that. (laughs) Your intellectual and physical abilities. All of this is the work of God who treasures every inch. And of course, it is easy to know this in your head on Sunday and then on Monday to curse God for his work. Short ones wish they were taller. Tall ones wish they were shorter. Smart ones wish they could dominate athletically. Athletic ones wish they could play an instrument. Introverts wish they could be the life of the party. Extroverts wish they were, you know, more reflective. I don't know. We all do these things. All of this wishing that you could rise to the throne of the creator and remake yourself in the image of what you want to be. Like that billboard for the plastic surgeon said in 64 for so many weeks, be the you you always wanted to be. All it takes is a knife, friends. And we all do this. If only I was blank. I'd be happy. You fill in the blank. If only I was, you know, skinnier, prettier, stronger, smarter, faster, richer. You just fill in that blank. Then you'll be happy. It is a lie, friends. And so many of the personal destructive behaviors we see in the world from self-harm to suicide to practices that we enact on others from racism to classism and sexism, all of these fail to see the beautiful image of God in our neighbor. And if that's you, if either you struggle with this yourself or towards another, pray this psalm into your heart. If you're struggling with self-worth, pray this psalm into your heart. If you're worrying about your body, as I know many of you do, pray this psalm into your heart. 
If you're feeling useless and old, pray this song into your heart. The world and you and your body and everything, friends, you are in the best of hands. You are in the best of hands. And that includes all that you are, every inch of your being, every day, every breath that you breathe. We've seen these three amazing truths about God, and they are not just doctrines to know, they are truths to live. We affirm uh, that God is omniscient. Therefore, you are known. You are known fully. Second, God is omnipresent. Therefore, you are secure. And finally, God is omnipotent. Therefore, you are loved. And let me just say this. These truths are not necessarily good news. In fact, the idea that I am known all the way to the core, to the very heart of my internal desires and motivations, frankly, that's not an idea I like very much. Because there's a lot of things inside of me in my heart that are so scary, I don't want to admit them to myself. And there is nothing that is hidden from him. Nowhere you can hide. This God sees everything done in secret. Every website that you go to, every thought that you think, every word that you speak behind closed door or in silence. And that is a scary thing, friends. And you should fear this. You should tremble at a God who knows all things and sees all things just when you realize how total and comprehensive his knowledge and presence and power is in your life. And yet, for David, the omni-God has become good news. The God who sees all and knows all has become a happy reality. Why? And in so much in verse 24, he invites God to search him and know him and know even his deepest anxiety and sin. How has this become good news for David? Well, as we've been saying different ways each week, Jesus is the key that unlocks the secrets of every psalm. Jesus is the son of David. He is the son of God. He is the savior of the world. He is your brother and your friend. And Jesus changes the truth of God from scary things into happy things. Were it not for Jesus, you would all be, we would all be in serious trouble because God sees and knows all. But because of Jesus and because of his life and death for us, the scary truth has become the happy truth because Jesus was abandoned, because Jesus went into Sheol, because Jesus took all those things that we hide away and willingly died our death, because the judge who sees all died the death of all. A terrifying truth has become a liberating truth. The truth of God's omniscience and omnipresence and omnipotence have become truly good and beautiful news because we know that because of Jesus, we are safe in the grace of God and nothing can separate us from his love. That is what it means to be fully known, to be seen to the core, my life secure, my days ordained, my purpose set, my body cherished, my soul upheld, all because of Jesus and his grace. So in closing, I'd like you to consider this. If you're not a Christian, or if you're not sure that you are, it may be the case that you have been running all your life from the idea of a God who knows and sees all. Maybe that idea just seems completely smothering to you. I understand. I ran from him once myself. But don't you see that even as you run from such things, these are the very things that you long for and need. You were not meant to live unknown. You were not meant to live Life unsecure. You are not meant to ever be unprotected. You are a vulnerable man or woman, boy or girl, child. Don't you see that Jesus is the proof that God who knows you and surrounds you and sees all is not a malicious God who is trying to spoil your fun, but a God of love who wants you to flourish. Can you see that? There's so many of the problems in your life result from you trying to live your life without this omni-God. 
Would you surrender to him? Would you give your life to him? Would you see that Jesus is the doorway of love to the omnipotent, omnipresent, omnipowerful God? Surrender to him. If you are a Christian, consider how the truths of God in your head often get wedged up there and are not fully alive in your heart. Go to work, friends. Go to work. Do, do that banging prayer. The prayer that moves the truths of God down into the heart. Do that every day. As C.S. Lewis says, the moment you wake up each morning, all your wishes and hopes for the day rush at you like wild animals. And the first job each morning consists simply in shoving them all back and listening to that other voice, taking the other point of view, letting that other larger, stronger, quieter life come flowing in and so on all day. Would you do that, friends? Today, tomorrow, would you pray the truth of God into the heart all day, every day, believing what is true, living what is most real? Amen.